0: Thank you, brother. We're going to be addressing this topic that um, of that little booklet Adam mentioned just now. How can we love church members with whom we disagree politically? That Andy Naselli and I co-wrote. The last session was kind of a fifty-minute summary of how the nations of rage. So, if somebody ever asks you, "Yeah, hey, do you know about how the nations rage?" you can you can say, "Yeah, yeah, I, I heard the talk." You know, it's eh. Uh, leave that to you. But this book is going to, this talk is going to be kind of a summary. Of that little book that Andy and I did together. And just but just on that, it occurs to me from your, your announcements there, Adam. How can we love church members who we disagree with politically? A good knowledge of history and biographies, I think, helps put things in perspective. In the same way I said to the elders last night, a good good knowledge of, of global Christianity helps us put things in perspective. We can be as Christians in the West, we can be so parochial, and it's all about what's going on in our country. And if you just kind of step back and you look at what other Christians around the world are dealing with and throughout history have dealt with, I think that brings some perspective and allows us to live at peace together. That might be worth adding to my talk, that point, but there it is for free at the beginning. Okay, so, well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an important topic I think a lot of churches are feeling, I talked to a number of churches in my job, and it's what a lot of churches are feeling right now. Some people have church cultures that kind of veer right and some that kind of veer left, some are mixed, but all of them are feeling this growing tension. Just even in my own family, not recently two or recently two members of my extended family got into it over Trump. One for and one against. And family member number one said, look, I'm no fan of Trump, but how can you do anything other than fully oppose the Democrats insofar as they vocally oppose the very things for which God has established government, namely the protecting of the innocent and providing platforms for religious freedom, as I talked about in the last talk? I think he said something to the effect of, look, I understand people might have other issues you care about, but I I don't care if the Nazi party is good on welfare and education policy and healthcare policy, the Holocaust. How can you do that? (laughs) Family member number one, family member number two responded, this man is an eomaniacal, egomaniacal, racist, you know, race-baiting nationalist. And he's using Christians like you, he said to my other family, member, And in the process, utterly undermining Christ's witness in the world. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world complete with secure borders and a thriving economy and yet compromises his soul? What would you say to somebody who offered you health and wealth for this generation and the next two generations of your children, and the only cost was an undermining of your Christian credibility and witness. Would you accept that proposal? So why are you voting for Trump? This family member wanted to know, right? Not to mention all the people he harms, well, I suspect I might even be causing some of your blood pressures to rise even now as I'm kind of looking at both sides of this, but th- this is the conversation, right? This is what many of us are living inside of with, with friends or colleagues, and the question I want to ask is how can we, not just on this issue, not just Trump, this whole thing's not about Trump, but in general, how can we love fellow church members when we disagree on political matters? That's, that's that's a tough thing. I'm going to give you three whys and six hows. Three reasons why this is such a difficult topic, because I think that might bring some perspective. And then six, well, how do we do it? Six recommendations. Okay, so first, the three whys. This is such a difficult topic. One, because... Why number one? Because justified people care about justice. Number two, because self-justifying people always think they're just, even if they aren't. And number three, because this is a... This is the area of wisdom, and wisdom is hard to come by. Let me think about each one of those one at a time. Number one, justified people care about justice. If you've been justified as a Christian, you care about justice. And what is politics? Politics is the domain where we seek to do justice. That's the purpose of government. That's what politics is all about. And Christians care by the Holy Spirit in them. And if they're reading their Bibles care about justice so when your fellow church members disagree over the election or over immigration or over welfare policy your instincts are telling you you're choosing an injustice and that can make you angry because of course anger is in a sense the god-given emotion for responding to injustice you see a child being abused the right emotional response to that is anger Anger seeks to oppose. Anger destroys. That's what anger does. And so you see something that you think is unjust. There there is a potentially a right response of the heart to say, no, I oppose that. I want to destroy that. That's not good. Right? So why is this a tough topic? Because justified people care about justice and politics is the domain of justice. And when our fellow church members disagree with us politically, they're They're raising those questions in our minds. Reason number one, reason number two, this is difficult, is because self-justifying people are always certain that we're just. So you understand that as a Christian you're not immediately made perfect. You're still simultaneously just and unjust, simultaneously justified Luther put, put it and sinful. So maybe you're really upset at that person right now because they are choosing uh, a justice and you've rightly judged the situation and you love your neighbor and you want justice and so your angry reaction is is a, 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 a property of your sanctified self. Or you're still in the flesh too. And all of your judgments aren't perfect. And you are still self-justifying in certain ways. And so you're getting angry for some of the wrong reasons. Realize that when you get angry at people at the other side, you're doing what every tribe and every nation and every party has done in the history of the world. We get angry at the other side and we think we are always right. You're playing with trucks with your brother or sister on the floor and you start getting a fight and mom comes in and you say, Mom, but she, but he. We just assume we're right. We've done it since we were little kids, right? We are in the flesh self-justifying people. We assume we're right. In other words, friends, what I'm going to give with point one, I'm going to take away with point two. Point one, justified people care about justice, but I'm going to take away your sense of legitimacy and being angry with point two. Well, yeah, but self-justifying, people always think they're just. Are you sure that your anger is a right-calibrated, rightly-located anger? The, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, says the Bible. So those are the first two reasons this is a tough uh, issue, why it's tough. A third reason, political judgments require wisdom. Most political judgments we make depends on wisdom, not on applying explicit biblical principles. To put this another way, there is some space between our biblical and theological principles and our specific political judgments. There's space in between these two things. So so two Christians might agree on these biblical and theological principles and yet still disagree on what strategies or tactics or methods to take to to implement those principles. There's space here. And figuring out how to get from here my biblical theological principles to hear my political judgment in the here and now is tough. It takes a lot of wisdom. Uh, think of King Solomon when the two prostitutes came before him, each claiming, oh, th- th- this baby is mine. My baby, no, my baby. Well, he had to think about it. Well, there are certain biblical principles he wanted to apply, uh, respecting a mother's rights to... to have her own child, uh, however you want to define that biblically. Yep, trying to figure out, okay, which, which, which of these two mothers in this situation should get the baby? Well, th- th- that takes a lot of wisdom. He might, might have scratched his head. He, maybe he go into his counselors. Guys, what do you think I should do? Both of these, both of these prostitutes are, are, are saying it's her baby. I'm not sure what to do. But finally, Solomon thought to himself, and he says, I know, bring me a sword. Cut the baby in half and give half to each. And at that point, the real mama says, oh, she can have it. Showing everybody who the real mama was, right? And how does the narrator of 1 Kings chapter three summarize what the people just witnessed? He, he summarizes it like this, 1 King 3, 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the Wisdom of God was in him to do justice. They stood in awe of the king because the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Justice is the goal. What's the means? The means is the wisdom of God. You want you want the political philosophy of the Bible in a single verse. Forget Aristotle and Plato and Locke and Hobbes. There it is in a single verse. What do we need, Christians? We need the wisdom of God to do justice. That's what we need, right? But, but but it's this part, the wisdom of God. I ain't Solomon. And I certainly am not the one whom Solomon pointed towards, Jesus, who's perfect in his wisdom, right? And none of us are quite that. So friend, pick any contested political issue of our day. Think of, for instance, the controversy surrounding Central and South American asylum seekers and other migrants crossing the Southern U.S. border. So you have one group of Christians who believe that the present laws are just fine. And if anything, they believe we need to tighten the restrictions in order to protect our nation and in order to protect our children. Uh, meanwhile, you have another group of Christians who argue that humanitarian image of God considerations mean as allowing as many migrants into the Country as the present law allows, and even changing the laws to accommodate more. And let's just agree for a second that protecting our children and showing compassion to asylum seekers are both biblical principles, biblical impulses. Still, there there is a long way to travel between these two biblical principles, a long way to travel to figuring out how to balance those and apply those in our specific immigration policies. And that takes wisdom, and a lot of wisdom. People often today, when they, when they, when they think about their vote, they think about it as a personal expression of who they are or their tribal identity. Yet I would encourage Christians to think a little bit more critically and carefully. I would encourage you to think about your vote less as a matter of self-expression and tribal identification and more as a prudence-driven, wisdom-driven, strategic calculation about how to do justice in these these various difficult matters. And then realize that different Christians are going to make different strategic calculations, different prudential judgments. And as long as we're thinking about how difficult it is to get from here, the biblical principles to here, the policy applications, think about how quickly the, the, the ground shifts beneath our feet in various kinds of issues. So so suppose you lived in Germany in the 1920s and a Christian friend told you that he was going to join the National Socialist worker, German Workers' Party, the Nazis. If he told you this in 19 early 1920s, you would probably have some misgivings, but you probably wouldn't know enough or feel strongly enough to really oppose his action of doing that. But then let's fast forward to the 1930s and he said, you know, I think I want to join this party. Well, at that point, you would know a little bit more, quite a bit more, and those, those misgivings you have would cause you to say, I, I, I'd encourage you not to do that. I'm not sure I'm going to say you can't be a member of the church, but oh, we know enough about the Nazi party. These, these, guys, are, these are, guys are not good. Okay, but then let's fast forward to the 1940s. Well, by then it's super clear. You cannot be a member of this church and be a member of that party. No. Uh, What's the point? Well, the point is life and politics are not static. With every passing day, with every passing week and month, we need a fresh dose of wisdom because the political landscape keeps changing. And Christians are going to have different political opinions along the way. So what time is it now? Are we in 1920s, 30s, or 40s? On this issue, that issue, this party, that party, it's, it's tough. These are really tough things. God, give us wisdom. And just because something was one way in 2000 doesn't mean it was that way in 2010 or that way in 2020. Yet my goal throughout this talk is not to give you my own assessments, my own judgments of the political landscape or the weightedness of various things. Rather, it's to encourage you to seek wisdom first and to remind you that you and your fellow church members are not Solomon and they're certainly not Jesus, who alone is perfectly wise. And what that means is, remembering that, that should create some room for charity and forbearance with one another. Okay, that's three reasons why this is hard. I'm just hoping that by articulating, you're like, okay, I, I, I get this. This is about justice. That makes me angry. Then again, I tend to be self-justifying and that, I, I assume I'm always right. That should slow me down. And, and this is the domain of wisdom. I'm moving from here to the biblical principles to the policy applications. And the, there's some space. All of that, I'm hoping to kind of calm us down a bit and incline us to be a little bit more thoughtful in these matters. That's three whys. Okay, here's six hows, six Recommendations for how we can love church members with different politics. Number one, adjust your expectations. Adjust your expectations. The gospel does not automatically resolve all of our wisdom-based judgments when it comes to politics and policy in the here and now. Rather, what the gospel does is it helps us love and forbear amidst different judgments on those matters. It creates not uniformity. Hey, we all think the same thing. We all vote precisely the same way. Rather, it creates unity, not uniformity, unity amidst some measure of diversity. Here's the irony. Even if your church is healthy, in fact, I'm going to say especially, say especially if your church is healthy, your members will not be entirely uniform in their Politics in a healthy church, you're gonna feel some measure of tension. In fact, because you understand quite well that it's the gospel that unites us, not our political opinions that unite us. And if, in fact, we are all united in political opinions, whether on the left or the right or in some place, you might stop and ask yourself: Is it is it the gospel that's bringing unity, or is it certain forces in this world that are bringing this unity? Why is it that we all agree? Because the gospel doesn't promise to resolve all of these different matters. Think about Matthew, the tax collector, helping and aiding Rome, and Simon, the zealot, utterly opposing Rome. And there they are together, following after Jesus. My guess is when they left what they were doing and started following after him, I'm thinking they didn't immediately abandon all of their perspectives on Rome. I can well imagine how walking down the road, following Jesus, him up front, they're kind of quibbling a little bit with one. How could you do that with Rome? How could you do that with Rome? Nonetheless, they knew that they were following him. And a healthy church is gonna have some of that tension inside of it. So number one, adjust your expectations. Number two, recognize what a church is. So building on this last point, recognize that Jesus did not design our churches to be gatherings of a nation gatherings of an ethnicity gatherings of a political party rather he designed them to be a gathering of his people from every tribe tongue and nation what is your church your church friend is a community of former enemies. It is a community of political rivals working together for the gospel. The local church is where, if you heard my talk this morning, the local church is where enemy tribes begin to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Okay, what, what, what does that mean practically? That sounds nice, that sounds fancy. What does it mean, Jonathan, to say... Churches where we learn to love our enemies, where we beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning. What that means is you show up on church on Sunday and you're standing there in the lobby with that guy who's got that political hobby horse he's always talking about it and it kind of drives you crazy or that couple coming from that perspective and you're just like, oh my gosh, why are they so strident in that perspective? And you know that your job at that moment is to love them, to love him. I'm going to beat my sword into a plowshare, my spear into a pruning hook right now with with that guy and his hobby horse and that couple and their strident perspective. I'm going to love them and I'm going to embrace them. And this is where I get to practice it here in my local church. And I'm going to church with that expectation. That's my job. That's, that's That's what we're called to do here. Number three. Okay, number one adjust your expectations. Number two, recognize what a church is. Number three, recognize what unites a church and what belongs to the domain of Christian freedom. That's probably my longest point, okay? Recognize what unites a church and what belongs to the domain, the bucket of Christian freedom. So if Jesus did not design our churches to be gatherings of citizens or gatherings of a political party or gatherings of an ethnicity, but a gathering of Christians, okay, well, what is it that's uniting us? What, what, what holds us together? And here is where I'm saying we need to make a distinction between, let's call them whole church issues. We're united by whole church issues. And not by, outside of that, let's call those Christian freedom issues. So two buckets, whole church issues, that's what unites us. Another bucket, Christian freedom issues. Those, those are the things that we don't have to agree upon in order to be members of this church. Whole church issues make us a church. They are things like the gospel, things like our entire statement of faith, things like an affirmation of one another's repentance from sin and trust in Christ, things like a participation in the ordinances. Meanwhile, outside of that bucket, in the other bucket of Christian freedom issues, are all those things that may be important. They may be morally significant, even tremendously so. I'm not saying this is the domain of moral relativism. But we're not quite ready to say Christians must with these. To be a member of this church, you must think this or do that. These are Christian freedom issues. We're not going to treat them as conditions for church membership because we want to leave some space for members of the church to disagree on these things and still be members of the church. Now, Christians are going to disagree about what's a whole church issue and what's a Christian freedom issue, what goes in this bucket and what goes in that bucket. That's fine. We can have those disagreements and we can talk through it case by case. The point is, I want you to have those two buckets. I want you to realize you need both buckets. Okay. Uh, to borrow language from Jesus, some things a church will bind, other things a church will loose. The law is going to bind that or it's be loosed from the law. It doesn't bind that. And furthermore, hopefully we can all agree, okay, what are, what are, what's in the church, whole church bucket? Well, in the whole church bucket, all we got are things that are explicit in Scripture or things that are clear by, as I said in the Q&A time, good and necessary consequence from Scripture, right? Using language from the Westminster Confession. So it's either, it's just very there. It's on the pages of my Bible or just with a little bit of reasoning, I can see yeah, clearly Scripture is teaching this such that I can, I can bind the conscience with it. In other words, churches should not be binding consciences of members on an issue as a condition for membership unless the Bible teaches it. The Pharisees were known for binding consciences where Scripture didn't. So are cults. And let me be clear. I think Christians on the American right and the American left, the political right and the political left can be extremely pharisaical. I think we have a long tradition in America on both the left and the right of being self-righteous and pharisaical in our politics in imposing binding political, our political judgments and treating them as binding on all believers as if the Bible taught them when in fact the Bible doesn't teach them. We have a long tradition of that on both sides. And therefore I'm saying before we impose our convictions on others, we always want to ask two questions. What, okay, what is a, a whole church issue? Well, a whole church issue is one, that number one, I'm convinced that when the pastor stands up, when Adam, Pastor Adam, stands up and he opens the Bible and preaches it, this is what he's saying. This is clearly in the Bible or clearly, you know, by good and necessary consequence from the Bible. So number one, it's something that should be preached from the pulpit. And number two, a whole church are those things that we would treat as conditions of membership. You cannot be a member of this church and do this or do that, right? Right? So for instance, my church believes that the divinity and humanity of Christ, these are a couple of easy ones, the divinity and humanity of Christ are whole church issues while the nature of the millennium is not. Now you can have biblically informed opinions on the millennium, pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, but you can disagree on those things and still be a member of the church. You can't disagree on the divinity and humanity of Christ and be a member of the church. Okay, that, That's an easy example. Here's, here's another one I think is relatively easy, at least for, for most of us. I think calling people to repent of sexual immorality, I think that's a whole church issue. If you're going to say, hey, uh, you don't have to repent of sexual immorality, yeah, I'm like, yeah, you're, you're not going to be able to get along for very long as a member of my church. Whereas I don't think requiring parents to homeschool their children is a whole church issue. I think that's a Christian freedom issue. You might have biblical convictions informing why you choose homeschool or Christian school or public school, But you know what? We're not going to be the church of the homeschoolers. We're not going to divide the body of Christ over that. It is not a whole church issue. It is a Christian freedom issue. And again, this is not to say that this is the realm of moral relativism. Bring your biblical principles to bear in thinking about those Christian freedom issues. Fine, good, do it. Even talk to others about it, but recognize that we're not dividing the body of Christ over them. They are not whole church issues. You can happily come to the Lord's table with brothers and sisters who share a premillennial view when you're a mill or sends their kids to public school when you're homeschool. Okay, how does recognizing this, this distinction, even if we disagree on which things go in which bucket, how does recognizing this dis- distinction between whole church and Christian freedom issues help us love church members with whom we disagree politically? Well, the short answer is you must keep this distinction clearly in mind super clearly in mind when it comes to discussing politics when Christians lose track of this distinction they tend to treat everything as a whole church issue we tend to enter every debate as it's as important as whether or not you affirm or deny the resurrection itself you believe what well hold on we're we talking about the resurrection here If not, cool your jets just a little bit, okay? Maintain this distinction. Because if we don't maintain this distinction between this bucket and that bucket, we are, even as Christians, just gonna follow in the way of culture and we're gonna tear each other apart inside the church, across churches. So, very practically, when you are tempted to think in a way about, say, political topic X, this is the most important thing. I want you to stop. I want you to collect yourself. I want you to think very carefully. Okay, is this a a whole church issue or is this a Christian freedom issue? Okay. Am I ready to divide the church over? it? Am I ready to say, we are the church of political topic X? Are you ready for your pastor to get up, open the Bible, and bind every conscience? in the membership and say, this is the way of righteousness and not political acts is the way of wickedness. Are you ready to practice excommunication over that? Are you ready to screen people coming into your church over that issue? And let me be clear, I have a category for that. If you show up and you wanna join my church and it turns out you're a member of the Ku Klux Klan, yeah, sorry. I don't think you can follow Jesus as a repentant believer and be a member of the Ku Klux Klan. That's a whole church issue. The, the, the question of repentance there is so clear, I think. Here, here's this organization that's utterly devoted to dehumanizing those made in God's image. That's just such a straight, clear line. No, you cannot be call yourself a follower of Jesus, or at least we as a church are not gonna affirm you as a follower of Jesus if you are a part of that organization. Okay, so I have a category for... These kind of political judgments, which are whole church issues, and there are some. But I'm just saying to you, that's probably not most of our political judgments. So if you have an issue, just stop and think to yourself, okay, am I ready to make this a condition for membership? And is this something I really think the pastor should preach for all Christians everywhere? Christians, this is Jesus' position on this topic. Are you ready to say that? I remember talking to a, a Christian political science professor, and I said, so... Do you really think you know Jesus' position on healthcare and in the environment? He said, yeah, yeah, I think I do. (laughs) I'm like, wow. So the Holy Spirit of God has come down to you like an apostle and revealed the word of God to you like an apostle so that you know Jesus' opinion on healthcare and the environment. Wow. uh, I'm being sarcastic. I, I, I don't think most of our political judgments are there. And we got, we got to make this distinction between these two things. So, so, friends, very practically, if you want to make a case for reparations or against reparations, I'm going to say, fine, there's, there's space and freedom for you to do that and try to persuade other beliefs of your opinion, yes, but don't forget Christian freedom. If you want to make a case for using the language of systemic racism or against systemic racism, I have a personal opinion on that issue. I think it's pretty clear in Scripture. But if you're going to make a case for or against, I'm going to say that's fine. Don't forget Christian freedom. Are you willing to come to the Lord's table with people who don't share your understanding of that kind of political language and that topic? And so it is with Immigration policy, and the timing and location of civil disobedience, and st- specific strategies for combating abortion, and wearing face masks, and so many, a hundred other things. And friends, recognize standing there on the grounds of Christian freedom—that means you're going to you're going to bother people to the right who feel strongly, and you're going to bother the people to the left who feel strongly. But I'm just pleading with the body of Christ: we unite around Scripture, and what's clear by good and necessary consequence from Scripture. And we have plenty of space to disciple one another in some of these less clear matters. I'm not trying to rule that out and to call one another to a prophetic posture on this or that position. There's space for doing that. At the same time, can we do that and be really careful in making a distinction between my judgments in my head and God's judgments in the Bible and preserving the unique authority of the Bible over and against my own judgments? And preserving that place for Christian freedom. Christian freedom preserves the unique authority of the Bible. Christian freedom preserves the gospel. Because when I'm saying, this is what the gospel is and this isn't. I help preserve the gospel. Even if, even if some of these things are implications of the gospel or applications of the gospel. We've got to care about implications and applications. But you know what? We might not always agree on what those implications and applications are. And we need to leave a little bit of space for brothers and sisters in Christ to come to different understandings of what those implications and applications are, even when they are not clear, explicit, or clear by good and necessary consequence in Scripture. We've got a little side point. Notice, notice what I'm assuming throughout this point. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, in all of this, I'm assuming church membership. And I'm just saying this because I know I'm here in Seattle. I'm here on the West Coast. And I understand that Christians out west can often be very skeptical about the idea of joining churches. Let me me just offer one little quick plug here for church membership. I want you to notice how, ironically, the practice of biblical church membership keeps peace and unity among the saints, both within churches and even across separate churches. Biblical church membership helps Christians realize that not every issue is worth dividing over. It insists that we have these two buckets, these two lanes. We have, we, have, we have the whole church bucket and we have the Christian freedom bucket. And it places most political judgments in the latter. Or to switch metaphors, it's a way of concretely, the existence of church membership is a way of concretely insisting That not every issue is a firm grip issue. Statement of faith, the gospel, the call to repentance, firm grip. We cannot let go of those. But many of our political judgments about how to live out and how to apply the gospel, well, that's going to be more loose grip. Now, adjust your conversational volume and tone accordingly. Accordingly. Is this a firm grip issue? Is this a loose grip? Whole church issue? Christian freedom issue? Which is it? It should affect our tone in these kinds of conversations. Number four. How do we know when a political issue belongs in the whole church bucket or the Christian freedom bucket? Number four. Determine whether an issue requires a straight line or a jagged line judgment. Okay, so if I had a whiteboard again, I would have whole church issue in a straight line. How do I get there? I get from the Bible, straight line judgment to my whole church issues. Can you imagine that on my whiteboard? And over here, I have the Bible and I have a jagged line judgment, which is how I get to a Christian freedom issue. There's your flow chart if, if, if that helps you at all. Whole church issues depend on straight line judgments. Christian freedom issues depend upon jagged line judgments. Let, let, let me explain. When I say something is a straight line judgment, I mean that we have our biblical texts or theological principles, and there's a pretty straight line from those texts or those principles to a policy or political judgment, or application. Think of abortion. The Bible says everyone's made in God's image, even from the womb. Well, I'd say there's a pretty straight line from those texts to, and and you shall not murder, a straight line from those texts to abortion is murder. You shouldn't do it. I don't have to do a lot of deductive reasoning to get from one to the other. And therefore, I think preachers and Churches are right to open their Bibles and take a stand on abortion, both in their preaching and in their membership decisions. You cannot be an abortion doctor. You cannot be campaigning, I don't think, for abortion or Planned Parenthood and call yourself a Christian. It's just, I'm going I'm to call you to account for that. I want to have a conversation with you about because I think those things are contradictory. You know, what about health care? Suppose a Christian wants to argue for universal health care as a universal human Right. Well, that, that person might, she might cl- start with an ethical claim about human rights as a biblical idea, and from there, the argument, however, has to move back and forth down a jagged path, satisfactorily answering a number of questions on which Christians might reasonably disagree. Well, what services would be covered? At what cost to the taxpayers? What would be the economic trade-offs, and are those economic trade-offs themselves just? What if the standards of care dramatically drop such that more people cannot be receive life-saving treatment? I think with questions like these and so many others, it'd be harder to assert that the universal health care is the Christian position according to the Bible. I can't quite draw a straight line from those biblical principles which are informing my thinking, which is good, a straight line from those down to that policy application. So I'm happy for you to make a case for universal health care, even using biblical principles to do it, but I'm insisting. I think you can only get there by a jagged line. So don't be careful about not making your position the standard of Christian faithfulness, as if all Christians should fall in line or, or be called bad Christians in that sense. Now, with many political issues, we might agree that the issue itself I'm getting a little more complicated. Okay, so so bear with me. The issue itself we might say is a straight line, but the strategies and tactics themselves are jagged lines. Abortion, I said, is a straight line, but does that mean I can insist as a pastor you guys should be there this Saturday to protest those abortion clinics? Well, you might actually as a Christian think that's a counterproductive tactic, and I want to preserve your freedom to say I I think that's a, a bad idea to protest that clinic. The strategy there is a jagged line. Now here's another example. I'd say that opposing racism and police brutality is a straight line issue. Christians must oppose these things. I will bind your conscience from the Bible to that. You must oppose racism and police brutality. But does that mean you should join a protest march? Well, for instance, I personally attended one such march in Washington, D.C. a month and a half ago, which was not quite a Black Lives Matter march, but was deliberately organized for evangelical churches following the death of George Floyd in order to, confer, to affirm the basic theological truth that all black people are made in God's image. And I, my, me and my family went out, and we, we participated in that peaceful march. I also invited members of my church, but In inviting the members of my church, I wanted to be very careful not to wrongly bind consciences and presuming too much about my own judgments about the usefulness of such a march. And so here's here's my text in my email to my church. I said, While I assume that all of you agree with me concerning the sinfulness of racism and police brutality generally, I recognize that not all of you might share my diagnosis of this particular historical moment and what steps are necessary for addressing such problems. And I want to affirm your Christian freedom and my fellowship with you amidst such differences. I love you all. But let me know if you are interested in driving down with me. I was trying to do two things. I was trying to stand up for a biblical principle that I think is the right biblical principles and, and express that in a particular political way, attending this protest. But I understood that even though the biblical principle is something that I think is the right st- to stand up for, my, my, my own judgment about how to do that, move, moving from here to here, to go back to that earlier, so the biblical principle all the way to the, the, the application of it, a protest, that's not something I could bind the conscience on, and I want to be very careful with the members of my church as one of the elders not to do that. Now, perhaps there was a better way for me to have done that, but I'm confident that Christian freedom is a category in the language that Christians in the United States especially need to grow in using. We don't know how to use it. We Since the American Revolution, we've tended to treat our opinions on this or that matter of politics like revolution we've tended to treat our opinions as clear and necessary as the resurrection itself. And I'm not sure that's always the case. I fear such attitudes often bind consciences where Scripture doesn't and wrongly divides the body of Christ. Okay, that's number four. Number five, welcome brothers and sisters who have differently calibrated consciences on jagged line judgments and don't look down on them welcome brothers and sisters who are making different judgments and don't look down on them. Another label for Christian freedom issues is what Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 14 and 15. He calls them disputal matters or matters of conscience. Let, let, me, let me explain what that is. Well, we have different perspectives and backgrounds and personalities and preferences and thought processes and levels of understanding about God and His Word and His world, so I'm not surprised when two different, differently situated Christians are going to disagree about jagged lying judgments, and we need to expect and encourage one another to live one, with one another amidst those different judgments. We don't always need to eliminate those differences, but we must seek to glorify God by loving each other through those differences. That's Paul's main concern in Romans 14. Listen to a few verses. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while a weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one Who eats, despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Or verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Or verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it. I know it's not unclean, but if he thinks that it is, it is for him. I'm not going to bind his conscience there. For it is your brother, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, you dis- do you not destroy the one for whom Christ died? Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Friends, how are we doing at that? At bearing with the failings of the weak when it comes to our political judgments? So is it okay to talk with your fellow believers about jagged line Christian freedom issues? Yes, but only if you can do it with the right spirit and in the right proportion. Be strict with yourself and generous with others. Don't become so preoccupied with your jagged line issues that you are divisive about them. Jagged line issues should not be so important to you that that's all you want to talk about. So a friend of mine who is an Hispanic recently shared with me that he struggles with this idea of Christian liberty, particularly around the election of Donald Trump. And he discovered, to his chagrin, that one of his oldest and longtime friends, childhood friends, in fact was going to vote for Trump. Let me read to you my Hispanic friend's words. He says, I shared with him, my childhood friend, very candidly my fear surrounding my physical safety, how I believe that the president's rhetoric incites and empowers racist actions that have a genuine potential to cause physical harm to my body, my family, and all the brothers and sisters of color. This is very personal, and it is something that crosses my mind daily. Will my parents be safe from physical harm when they go grocery shopping? Will someone see my father as dangerous because he's an immigrant? Will I be targeted while I'm out for a drink with friends? My friend listened and leaned in. He did not offer a rebuttal or a counterpoint, but instead acknowledged that my concerns were real and valid. He admits that he, as a white male, has the advantage of not having to worry about that. He can go beyond the issue of race and drill down on other issues that concern him. More recently, we, he and and his friend, were together again with another group of friends, and someone asked him, if you had to vote today, who are you going to vote for? He responded by explaining that he wasn't sure, but that based on our conversation with me, he had to grapple with the fact that his vote could create an environment that could cause physical harm to me and other people of color. Ultimately, he may still vote in a way that's different than me, but the road that he took to get there included my perspective and my voice. And I think that's meaningful. It was evident that my testimony slowed him down. Before, he may have blown past it and not allowed himself to be brought low and was not taking it lightly. But he was working to consider me and love me. At that moment, I felt seen heard and valued his willingness to consider my perspective made me want to double down on our unity in Christ yes he may or may not change his mind but at the end of the day our bond is strengthened and unity is preserved not amazing Here's an example of two humble, godly brothers, brothers in Christ, welcoming one another, not passing judgment on one another, even though they might make vote differently and have different opinions on these issues, arriving at different judgments, but still valuing, affirming one another, both in the gospel and in their shared humanity. Number six and finally remember what's most important. Working for justice is important. It's one part of Christian discipleship. Christ-justified people care about justice. Yet friends, I have to observe what the New Testament emphasizes as the best means for pursuing a just world. It emphasizes making disciples. Just think about the epistles with me for a moment. They are not primarily tracks on how to do justice outside of the church. They are primarily tracks on living justly and righteously inside the church. Our political engagement outside should be an outflow of our justice and righteous-seeking lives inside, as I talked about in the last section. And Jesus and Paul and the rest of the apostles could have spent a lot of time, a lot of ink, talking about Caesar and the political world of that day. And they did say a couple of things, but not much. So it's not surprising that Christians should care about justice. It's that we know any good that the upcoming election will do at best will be temporary and full of holes, and we desire a perfect justice which will last which is primarily why christians join together on whole church issues it's the straight line judgments and whole church matters that unite us that point to the perfect justice which will last and all the jagged line Christian freedom issues we spend so much time debating will not last, at least not as clearly and crucially. Ancient Rome came and went. The Holy Roman Empire came and went. The Soviet Union came and went. Even the United States will come and go. No matter which nation you name is your own, it will come and go. And we know that Jesus will win. We know that his kingdom does not hang in the balance. And Christians who possess this happy confidence can engage with one another amidst these secondary political matters while simultaneously enjoying unity and fellowship and hope as they together anticipate the coming reign of Christ. Well, friends, as the culture presses hard against the church, we are going to face compromise to unfaithfulness, but we need to watch out for another. It's always, it's always a risk that we might step into unfaithfulness and compromise, but there's another risk among the church, and that's what Mark Dever has called balkanization. You might know that word from the, from the Balkans, how they split apart a nation into many sub-nations. If we do not understand and do not learn the language and the love of Christian freedom, we will balkanize we will turn into a hundred sub-nations. That's not what I think the Lord Jesus called us to. So humbly listen to those who don't share your perspective, especially when they come from a different background. Uh, Put yourself in another person's shoes. What, What principles of justice might they be seeing that from their background animate them that you maybe not see quite as quickly? Pray for those who you disagree with, And when you pray about the outcome of someone else's faith, God, often you find, I find, deepens my affections for those people. When fellow church members celebrate Bible teachings that are of first importance, jagged line issues shouldn't overthrow the riches of truth that we love, live for, and would die for. And finally, my last piece of advice on how do we love church members with whom we disagree politically. Here it is. Meditate on eternity and final judgment Often, this shouldn't cultivate complacency or indifference toward injustice, but it should calibrate our political perspective. Measure the now according to the eternal then, and pour yourself out in the now because you've secured the eternal then. Pour yourself out for the good of others now because you're confident in the then but it also should calibrate what you know is the most weighty. Our hope is not in a platform or movement or party or kingdom now. Our hope is in the day the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Christ. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us for not loving others as we should. Forgive us for not caring about issues of justice as we should. Forgive us not for not meditating on eternity and the things of heaven as we should. So much we could confess. We pray that you would transform our lives to be like Christ's glorious life, that we might image him better, both as we engage with one another and as we engage with outsiders. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.